Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Hey, this is Chris Kimball, and I need your help. We're working on a story about the battles we all have in our home kitchens. Maybe you're tired of your partner telling you how to cook, or maybe they always leave a mess, or maybe you're frustrated by your loved one's highly restrictive diet. We want to hear about your kitchen dramas from the biggest food fights to your everyday grievances. You can leave us a voicemail at 617-249-3167, 617-249-3167, or send a voice memo to radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. One more time, call us at 617-249-3167 or email us a voice memo at radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. Please include your name and where you're calling from, and thank you. This is Mill Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Many people have read Homer's Odyssey, and many people have memorized their favorite recipes. Rebecca Mae Johnson has done both, but with an obsessively analytical approach. The Odyssey is a text of someone going on a journey and having encounters with people and learning things through those encounters. And Odysseus only did his Odyssey for 10 years. Well, how many people have spent, you know, 50 years cooking a recipe? And what have they found out through that work, through the encounters that that recipe has brought about? A journey from ancient Greece to dinner time that's coming up later on the show. But first, it's my conversation with food writer Hetty McKinnon about her latest book, Tenderheart, a book about vegetables and unbreakable family bonds. Hetty, welcome back to Milk Street. Hi, Chris. It's so nice to be here again. This book is dedicated, I think it's fair to say, to your father. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I want to ask a question about your father. So you lost him at an early age. Yeah. Was there something about him in particular that made this bond so close? Was it losing him at age 15? It just sounds like there was a, a remarkable memory and relationship there. So so what what really drove you to write this book and dedicate it to him? Hmm. That's a great question, Chris. Um, after I wrote To Asia With Love, I really wanted to write a book about vegetables. I've been a vegetarian for most of my life and vegetables really kind of influenced me to get started in food to, to start with. And so I wanted to write this book that was my vegetable origin story. And in the process, 
I kept coming back to my father. Um, For context, my dad worked at the produce markets in Sydney and he'd brought home just an overabundance of fresh fruits and vegetables. I had to step over crates of oranges and bananas to get to the bathroom, that kind of thing. It was a really privileged upbringing when I think about it in terms of, you know, food. But after I lost him, all that overabundance stopped and... Um, my mum's an immigrant from from China and she had never been to a grocery store before, like in terms of buying fresh fruit and vegetables. So for the first time, she was in her f- mid-40s at the time, she had to go to the green grocers and get one of those little plastic bags and fill it up with three potatoes. And that was a really huge transition to our lives and it left a, a really big mark. You know, you you learn to live with loss and grief and... It comes out in different ways. I never really thought that I would end up being a cook and writing cookbooks. But in the end, there was no story that I could tell about my relationship to food, my relationship to cooking without telling the story of my father. So it was a really, it was a hard book to write. But ultimately, it is a real celebration of vegetables and plants and life. And I think to me, that's um, a beautiful homage to my father. Yeah, I really love reading your description of him and his influence on your cooking. So uh, moving into the kitchen, what would you say are maybe three or four pantry ingredients you think people should have on hand to cook vegetables the way you do? Oh, wow. Most people have soy sauce, I would think. Yeah. But what else do they need? I mean, I think the way this book was developed was really using pantry ingredients. So kimchi, I think, is absolutely essential. There's um, a lasagna in the book that has kimchi in there. Um, You know, chilies, like dried chilies, things that really amplify. I think vegetables are a wonderful blank canvas, but you kind of really need things to amplify and make them exciting every night. Chili oil and chili crisp are so handy. In my fridge, I've got, you know, miso, doenjang, gochujang. All those fermented pastes will really do you very well. I think to cook out a tender heart, you have to really rely on your pantry and make sure it's stocked with a lot of these kind of high-powered, high-flavour condiments, which make weeknight cooking so much easier and faster. You obviously stir-fry, but I saw a recipe for stir-fried iceberg lettuce, <laughs> which I really I really like. So how does that work? Yeah, so well, in Chinese culture, we don't really eat raw lettuce. So for most of my younger life, I grew up eating cooked lettuce. It's often served at the bottom of like braised mushrooms or braised abalone. So there's like a thick kind of brown gravy on it. Super delicious. So there's an Asian greens chapter. And the last recipe I added to this chapter was stir fried lettuce because I just felt like I needed to have that recipe in my book because it's something I love. And it's so central to the types of dishes that I ate growing up. It just has this amazing texture that you can't find in other vegetables. And it's usually iceberg lettuce and it stays crisp and it somehow absorbs, you know, the gravy or whatever seasonings you add to it. And it's just delightful. So I highly recommend it. 
I think you have something in common with our kitchen at Milk Street because there's this fennel group in, in our kitchen. And, and they like every, every time I, I taste something, there's always they sneak fennel in. I mean, you do a fennel with gnocchi, you do a pickled fennel niçoise. So um, I should just say that many of the recipes in this book are not the same old, same old. I mean, some of this is, is very inventive and different. So tell me about fennel and gnocchi. <laughs> well, I love fennel. Um, that recipe, the fennel with the gnocchi, is um, one of my favourites in the book. It's one I make a lot. My kids love raw fennel. It's quite a, a strong taste, but it's not divisive in our home at all. So when I find a vegetable that's not divisive, I go for it. So in this recipe, I actually turn the fennel fronds into a pesto. It's so good. It's very green. It's very herbaceous. And then... I serve that fennel frond pesto with pan-fried gnocchi and then I shave the fresh fennel and have that through the the gnocchi. So it's like this kind of contrast in flavours, the crispness of the shaved fennel with the kind of spongy gnocchi and then, you know, the beautiful fragrant fennel pesto. You know, with this book, and that was why it was a really fun book to write, it's like I'm challenging people to think about vegetables in different ways and to think about the possibilities. If you pick up one, you know, one or two fennel, what are you going to do with that that's going to make it exciting and interesting and beyond just baking it or cutting it into wedges and eating it crudite? Like there's there's so much potential in any vegetable, really. Grilling vegetables and roasting them are nothing new, but... Um, let's just take grilling, like baby bok choy. So if you were, I don't know, if if you were and I were cooking together and I had a nice hot grill outside, yeah. give me just a couple ideas for dealing with vegetables on the grill that I might not think of. Oh, that you might not think of. I love to grill eggplant, for example. That's not new, but there's a really lovely recipe in the book that is grilled eggplant with a nearly nok chim, which is a Vietnamese sauce, but it's a veganized version. But after you've grilled a vegetable like eggplant, it becomes tender and it becomes very willing to soak up any flavors that you want to team it with. So, so do you grill it like they do in the Middle East to death? Yeah, I grill it quite a lot until it's... Um, I, I still want some texture in it. You know, I think that there's a there's a sweet spot where it just turns. Creamy. You know, if right. you don't do it enough, it, it's going to have that right. rubbery, that, you know, when people always talk about the, um, when they say it's that it almost grates on your teeth, I'm like, that's an uncooked eggplant. So if that's happening, that's nothing to do with the eggplant. It's because you haven't cooked it far enough. So there is that sweet spot when, as you say, it just turns creamy inside. Okay, last question. Jane Austen. Are you still reading Jane Austen? <laughs> I love Jane Austen. Um, I collect Jane Austen books, so I have many different editions of all her books. But recently, when I was writing this book, I went back to try to find the edition that I had read when I was a teenager because it was all her books, all seven books in one edition, and so the writing was really, really small. And I went to try to find it. And I think I had accidentally thrown it out when I moved. Mm -hmm. But I still have all the other collected editions. And, you know, I think she's incredibly witty and 
you know, the things that she writes about are so current, I think. And which is your favourite? I really love Persuasion. Persuasion was the first one of her books I read. I think that Anne Elliot is a different type of heroine and she's surprising. So you grill vegetables and you read Jane Austen. (laughs) Hedy, thank you so much. It's uh, been just a great pleasure to have you back on Milk Street. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for having me as always. That was Hetty McKinnon, author of Tender Heart, a book about vegetables and unbreakable family bonds. You can get her recipe for fennel and yaki salad with fennel frond pesto at MilkStreetRadio.com. Now it's time to answer your cooking questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on Public Television and author of Home Cooking 101. Hey, Sarah, how are you? I'm good. So before we get started, We took a call a while back about cooking beans in an acidic liquid, you know, a.k.a. tomatoes, right? Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, so we actually went back to the kitchen and uh, we did some tests and it was kind of an interesting result. We took white beans, great northern beans. We tried tomato paste, just two tablespoons actually. And then the other test was a big can, 28-ounce can of tomato puree. We tried putting them in with the beans at the beginning of cooking, and the other test was halfway through cooking. Yeah. Starting at the beginning of cooking was a complete disaster because the beans never softened. Halfway through, also, they came out tough and sort of chewy. So either tomato paste or tomato puree or canned tomatoes, you really have to wait till the beans have fully cooked because otherwise they just will never get tender. They'll never get tender. They'll never get tender. Glad to know. Full circle. We got a real answer. Yes. So, all Yay. right. Let's take a call. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Lindsay Richardson from Fayetteville, Arkansas. It's a very musical way of saying your name. I like that. How can we help you? <laughs> I'm running away from my children right now. They're crying for me, but I will try to keep this quick. I feel like I've gotten really good at frying chicken. Yeah. I've been using peanut oil. And on occasion, I'll leave the oil sitting in the cast iron Dutch oven. Mm -hmm. At the end of multiple batches, there's all this like chocolatey tasty bits at the very bottom. And it tastes like roux. And so I was wondering if there's any good use for that. First of all, to get back to the frying, every time you fry in the same oil, the smoke point goes down. It degrades. So at some point, that oil is going to be kind of nasty and smoky. and A little dangerous. Personally, I, I would also probably just filter it, you know, in between with some coffee filters or whatever. That'll help keep the oil. But that's up to you. You can use it as much as you want. That's a good question. If you could use those little bits as the basis for a roux, it's probably very strong. You might use a little bit of it to flavor. It is, yeah. yeah. So you might use a tablespoon or something to flavor it, you could try that. I would probably use it twice and I'd try to filter it in between. But I know as a kid in Vermont, you know, people used to leave their Dutch oven full of bacon grease or oil for months and they cook in the same stuff. So, you know, it's it's a personal choice. Yeah. Oh yeah. For months they would have like half full of bacon grease and they would just heat it up and fry something in it and I think the only problem is at some point that oil is going to be so strongly flavored it's going to overpower the chicken, right? I mean, you don't want to just taste that 
dark, smoky oil. It's great, but it might be a little overpowering. Those little brown bits in the bottom, if you're not filtering them, those are the bits of flour that got nicely brown that was on the chicken. Yeah. So you're right. It's similar to a roux, because what is a roux? It's equal parts butter and flour or oil and flour that you cook and cook and cook, you know, for like a gumbo until it's mm-hmm. a nice toasty color. And what happens, the more you cook flour, the less it loses its thickening ability. So a dark roux, which you use for gumbo, you'll need more of it to thicken the gumbo than you would if you never cooked it that far. You could certainly add it to a dish for its flavor. It's like you've got instant cooked roux, but it won't do much for thickening, if that is indeed what you're thinking of doing. But if you leave oil at room temperature, it is also eventually going to go rancid. And you may never be able to taste it because it's so flavored by all the stuff you've been frying in it. So Mm -hmm. I sort of agree with Chris about only using it twice. I'd say if you want to save those brown bits, I would strain them out and put them in the fridge so that they don't go rancid. And then, you know, experiment adding a tablespoon or two or, you know, whatever to whatever dish just for the flavor. See it as a flavoring agent. And when you strain it out, use a really fine mesh strainer. Mm -hmm. So you just get those little bits. That would also be helpful. Yeah. Yeah, we raise our own chickens. We heard some in yeah. the background there. Well, that wasn't a chicken, that was a rooster. Oh, did you hear that? Yes. Hear that? yes. That's funny. I actually had to run away from my children just to make this phone call. Well, you better <laughs> you go back to them. Yeah. You don't want them hanging off the rafters. Are you, are you calling from a closet? You're, yeah. you're hiding? Um, no, I'm actually in my greenhouse. Oh. Well, that was an intriguing question, so thank you. Yeah. Give it a shot. Yeah. I will. Thank you guys so Yeah, thanks much. for calling. I love you. Say hello to the kids. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. Well, Bye. 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 This is Mill Street Radio. If you have a kitchen problem, we're here to help. Give us a ring, 855-426-9843, 855-426-9843, or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, my name is Amy. And where are you calling from? I'm in Chicago. How can we help you today? I love mushrooms, but over the years, I've developed an allergy to them. Oh, (laughs) boo-hoo. Exactly. (laughs) And I am wondering how I can find a good food substitute that does everything a mushroom does. So it has good taste, good texture, adds flavor to a dish, like a good umami bomb. Well... We can talk about umami and other vegetables, but there is no replacement for mushrooms. I'm sorry. I figured. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. This sounds like marriage counseling. I know, really. And it's so sad because I love, love mushrooms, so I feel your pain. There's quite a few vegetables that do naturally have umami, among them onions, garlic, cabbage, but also carrots. And a lot of it, I think, has to do with proper seasoning, using umami ingredients with them, miso and soy sauce, and I'm sure Chris will throw in some other ideas, and cooking them to eliminate extra, you know, all the water in them. And they just come out so full of flavor. But Chris, do you have any suggestions? Yeah, I I agree. There is no substitute. I mean, I think charring or heavily roasting. When I was in Tel Aviv a couple years ago, I had charred cabbage with a sauce that was phenomenal. I know. Who knew cabbage? You think of it as yeah, watery, right? It was right? fabulous. It yeah. was really good. And then, you know, long cooked, you know, a few years ago, people were cooking carrots for two or three hours in the oven. It dried them out, but gave them concentrated so much flavor. flavor. Yeah. All sorts of sauces. I mean, fish sauce, if you buy a good one, is not fishy at all. And that's just a great 
thing to have around. To add um, to vegetables. You know, anchovies, put a little bit of – a couple of anchovies in when you're making a sauce with the onions. Miso's great. Tomato paste has a lot of umami as well. You can make a paste with tomato paste and some seasonings and toss that with vegetables before roasting. That would also help. But there is no direct – no, no mushrooms are so unique. So, I'm is so this sorry. any kind of mushroom yes. you're allergic to? It started with portobellos mm. and then shiitake and oh, now button mushrooms. So, so it's all gone downhill. Yeah. It started bad and got worse. Sure. So, dear. Um, <laughs> so sorry. Yeah. So, I mean, I, one other thing I would say, though, everyone's been talking about umami in the last 20 years. And I think it's a little overdone. If you look at most other countries, there's a balance of sweet and sour and charred and bitter. And umami is a taste. It seems here in the States, umami is the number one thing people want. We're going through our umami yeah, stage. Uh-huh. I think, you know, a little goes a long way. And for example, in a beef stew, most other countries would use less beef and have many other flavors in the stew. So umami's fine, but balance it with other things and you won't miss the lack of umami if you have other things going at the same time. That's why sweet and sour in almost all countries comes together, right? It's a nice balance. So try other kinds of flavors too. Yeah. yeah. That was my little soapbox speech yeah. there, right? Hope you like okay. it. Okay. Well, Amy, good question. Yeah, good luck with that. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is Mill Street Radio. Coming up, a scholar of Homer writes her own culinary epic. That's after the break. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Rebecca Mae Johnson is a scholar of Homer's Odyssey. She specializes in how classical texts are read, translated, and rewritten throughout history. But her interest in classical studies doesn't end with the Odyssey. She used the same framework to study another famous text, Marcella Hazan's tomato sauce recipe. She decided to cook it a thousand times to see what changed with each preparation. 
The result of this culinary odyssey is in her book, Small Fires, an Epic in the Kitchen. She joins us now. Rebecca, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you very much for having me. I'm delighted to be with you. I've read a lot of cookbooks, as you can imagine, in the last 40 plus years, uh, or books about food writing. Your book, Small Fires, is unique. (laughs) Could you briefly describe the concept of the book and what you're up to here? Gosh, um, it's a book of creative nonfiction. And I guess I used the license of that as a sort of genre to bring in different ways of thinking, different um, sources from academia and literature to talk about cooking and to try and really grapple with the kind of knowledge that we make in the kitchen. So there's one sort of central recipe in the book, which I cook a thousand times, and documenting that becomes a kind of epic and a way of telling, I guess, telling my life story, but also thinking about things. When we cook the same recipe a thousand times, what do we learn about ourselves? What do we learn about life and the world beyond ourselves and other people through that labour? I did a PhD in in German poetry, specifically about rewriting of the Odyssey, and uh, that makes its way into there too. So I I guess I grow to think of myself as (laughs) some kind of... uh, on some kind of epic journey through cooking. Well, you probably have totally scared off half my listeners, but oh, on God. the other hand, you probably <laughs> intrigued the other half, and I'm part of the other half. So you mentioned epic, and you talk about the Odyssey, and it was uh, rewritten uh, not too long ago yeah. uh, by a German poet, Barbara Kohler. Mm. Yeah. So here's a line for your book. Uh, cooking is a practice that deserves our attention, Mm-hmm. The recipe is just as epic a text as the Odyssey, if not more so. Now, one might question whether a recipe is as epic as the Odyssey, but I'll, I'll let you defend that on your own. What, what exactly do you mean by that? Yeah, um, I was studying this Odyssey text that had given a lot of serious attention to domestic work in its rewriting of the Odyssey, looking at specifically Penelope's work as a weaver. And then I, whilst I was doing this work over many, many years, I was doing a lot of cooking. And I sort of began asking myself, why am I not treating the kitchen as a space to do thinking? You know, I'm studying it in theory in my PhD, but I'm not actually giving domestic work and then my work in the kitchen, it's due. And in fact, it has been the place that I found out so many things about how to relate to other people, how to communicate with other people, research into the body, into the senses, into pleasure. So that's sort of one aspect of it. But then I guess talking about it on the scale of a text like the Odyssey, how many times has a recipe been cooked over how many decades and and even centuries? And I, I began thinking about all of the knowledge and the voices that get collected into the dish, into the recipe, through this time. And, you know, the Odyssey is a text of someone going on a journey and having encounters with people and learning things through those encounters. And Odysseus only did his Odyssey for 10 years. Well, how many people have spent, you know, 50 years cooking a recipe? And what have they found out through that work, through the encounters that that recipe has brought about? A lot, I would say. And I wanted to elevate how we think about that labour and that time and the kind of learning that happens in that time by comparing it to the Odyssey. I mean, I suppose it is a bit of a a bold claim, but I, I wanted to make a point by making that claim. And, and I and I and I believe it. 
So you did cook a recipe a thousand times, mm -hmm. Marcella Hazan's tomato sauce. Um, and, and you throughout the book, you go, and the number 656th time I found <laughs> this. And my career has been about cooking recipes over and over again, although not mm -hmm. a thousand times. Did you um, Did you actually, during that process, at the thousandth time, mm -hmm. end up being changed or having a deeper understanding of yourself or your life or the recipe at that point? I mean, was there a huge transition from the first to the thousandth time? Um, yes, because I was cooking it over this 10-year period. And, you know, each time I returned to the recipe, in a way, you're also returning to myself. You know, when I cook it, how do I feel about myself on this day? Or And then two years later, when I returned to it. And it, I guess it became a, a container for memoir. So, but let's talk about the recipe, okay? Because there's a lot of back and forth in the world of food these days about what a recipe or who owns a recipe or whatever. Yeah. Y you say a few things interesting. You say language is only a holding pattern for the recipe. It's not its origin nor its terminus. And then you also go on to say, this frustrates those who seek to identify and venerate the original version of the recipe. So if one had a bifurcated choice here, that is mm -hmm. a, a recipe is carved in stone and mm -hmm. is a thing versus a recipe is a starting point, but there are innumerable outcomes from a recipe. Which camp are you? I'm in the latter camp, as you might right. imagine. <laughs> yeah. So, so when you cook that sauce a thousand times, mm -hmm. at some point, didn't you totally transcend the recipe and you were no longer tied to it in any way whatsoever? I wouldn't say I was no longer tied to it, but I feel like it sort of gave me a foundational grammar in the way it transformed my understanding of ingredients and how to use them and how to wait for them to reveal themselves. It gave me, in a way, the control that grammar gives you over language to sort of use it and then sort of speak in my own voice. And then also when you have a mastery of something or when you understand how to use a language, you can then subvert it or transform it through your use of it. And, you know, I, I use translation as a metaphor a few times through the book to think about what cooking is as an act. And I, I have found that useful to think about how that process of transformation happens and that the changed dish is nonetheless in a big relationship with the sauce dish. And, and I think that's one of the wonderfully democratic things about recipes is that as soon as somebody cooks a recipe, their own authorship inevitably becomes part of the story of that recipe. You, you define cooking as lots of things. Mm -hmm. You start out cooking as physical. And mm -hmm. I, I just want to read something of yours. I love it. Begin the epic by summoning a body. Then decide how to clothe yourself for what lies ahead how to dismantle the traps you will encounter on your journey. And then I love this line, the erotics of tying my apron strings tightly. <laughs> so th there's a sensuality or sexuality in cooking as well as a physicality. You want to just talk about that? Yeah. Um, I felt it was really important to begin with the body in the kitchen um, you know, it's it's a space that's historically quite loaded with lots of sort of norms and ideals about gender and, you know, certain performances of domesticity, which people have felt oppressive and stressful and unpleasant. But also 
being quite open and honest about the erotics of that space and that it is a space of pleasure and desire. We think about satisfying our own desires and other people's desires and also investigating those desires. It's an intensely erotic space. And so, yes, I talk in, in quite a, frankly, uh, I guess quite a sort of kinky way about how I wear an apron and the pleasure of apron strings, tying it very tightly. There's a sort of bondage element there, which I wanted very consciously to bring out and to think about how to have the body you want in the kitchen at the beginning of this cooking journey. And, and you know, everyone will have their own version of that. You have an interesting point about cooking with love I thought was fascinating. You said there was a a writer in the 1970s who argued mm. that housework is not seen as work because it's considered an expression of love. Mm. And then, then you say the, the phrase cooking with love is used to avoid thinking about the cook and the specificity of her life. That is, you know, the fact that she or he may not actually want to be cooking mm. <laughs> or or is sort of like, you know, a house domestic servant. Mm. So So cooking with love papers over some of the deeper issues in, in cooking in certain situations? Yeah, exactly. And I felt it was really important to dismantle this pressure to perform a sort of certain gladness and sort of joy in the kitchen. You know, and I, and I drew on the work of Silvia Federici, this um, important uh, feminist thinker who wrote that because of this uh, association of performing tasks like cooking, because of its association with love... Um, I guess, often maternal love, we cease to be able to perceive it as labour that one may not want to do or withdraw from doing, <laughs> go on strike, you could say. I wanted to clear the way to perceive it as work that we don't have to love it. We can also reject it and refuse it and want to say, I hate this. Let's talk about cooking as pleasure, which everyone likes to say. Mm. And you talk about Nigella Lawson a fair mm. amount. You said that when she talks about her own pleasure, which she does a lot, that's part of her charm, I think, you said this shocks me. Why, why does it shock you? I guess the confidence in claiming authorship of her own work in the kitchen and the boldness of it felt unfamiliar to me. And it was scary and exciting at the same time. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, from speaking to other people who've admired her work, I think, you know, she gives great um, inspiration to many people by showing people how to be confident in claiming their own work and claiming their own pleasure in the kitchen, which there's lots of discourse around, you know, feeling guilty about certain foods and, you know, the sort of pressure on women often to be sort of modest about their own kitchen labours and things like that. So the fact that she wasn't, wasting her time with that she displays a certain self-possession and confidence in that space which I you know is very um, inspiring and, and interesting and mesmerizing to watch on screen actually. On one hand I'm a big fan of just cooking and eating and have your mind your intellectual mind turned off entirely because you are experiencing it in the moment and you don't have to really think about it. Um, Many years ago, I was out rabbit hunting in the winter with a guy, local guy in Vermont, three feet of snow, and, and he made a fire and we had hot dogs. And these weren't great hot dogs, but <laughs> I still remember that meal because it was, mm. you know, 25 degrees out and there were dogs and snow and we were hunting and we ate hot dogs. And, you know, there was nothing intellectual about that moment whatsoever, but it's still, you know, it's one of the 
great meals I've ever had on some level. Do, do you think this is what culture does at some point? It, it overthinks itself, and maybe there was a time where people just enjoyed food and they didn't need to talk about it? I mean, wh- why is there this overwhelming need to talk about food? I mean, mm. which I'm fine with because I find it fascinating. But why do we talk about food? Why should we talk yeah. about it, I guess? I think people have always talked about food. You know, there's lots of food in the Bible or classical Greek literature. You know, the Odyssey is absolutely replete with meals. Um, every sort of social interaction half the time involves a meal. Food, food is always on people's minds, you know, how to get it, what's good, what's not good. But I think, you know, all of life is worthy of our thought and, and care and attention. And, you know, like love, for example, love is something that we experience in the moment, in the most incredible transformational way, but it's also worthy of thinking about it in different contexts and, and how it how it works or when it's allowed or not allowed or whatever, other things like that. You know, I absolutely love dancing, cooking, drinking, etc., with friends, but that doesn't make it uninteresting to me as something to think about, which humans have always felt the urge to do. I guess it was, it's partly what distinguishes us as a life form, um, that desire to think about the things that are part of our life. Well, I, I think, Rebecca, you and I need to have dinner together, cook dinner together, because I, I love the book Small Fires, and I, I love the way you think about food. You know, it's a stepping-off point for anything you want to talk about. Uh, and I hope to chat with you again. Thank you. Thank you so much for your wonderful questions. That was Rebecca Mae Johnson, author of Small Fires, an epic in the kitchen. The Odyssey is, yes, an epic, a 10-year struggle to return home from Troy. Rebecca Mae Johnson would like us to think of cooking as epic. It takes a lifetime to master. It involves perseverance, hard work, pleasure, as well as insight into others, their delights and prejudices. Perhaps religion and cooking share some common ground. Religions offer a practice that puts one on the road to enlightenment. So, why not a recipe? Say a Hail Mary, chant a Buddhist mantra, or make that tomato sauce a thousand times. In the end, I'd like to think our time in the kitchen brings us one step closer to salvation. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Now let's head into the kitchen with J.M. Hirsch to talk about this week's recipe, chicken fata. J.M., how are you? I'm doing great. You know, you take a lot of photographs when you travel. (laughs) Thousands. Yeah, thousands. But I do remember one of you sort of crouching in the desert in Jordan, um, (laughs) which was one of the more unusual ones. So what were you doing there and what did you bring back? Oh my gosh, there were so many amazing foods, but one of my favorites was actually not one dish, but a class of dishes called fata. And fata is a reference to broken bread, and that is actually the basis for this entire spectrum of recipes. And it's a very common kind of comfort food, almost, dare I say, Jordanian (laughs) casserole-ish, which probably isn't a great way of selling it, but it really was incredibly delicious. So true to traditions around the world, people historically never wanted food to go to waste. And in the Middle East, leftover flatbread was often turned into fata. And it's a very simple process of taking these leftover pitas that are possibly stale, 
and crisping them either in oil or in a dry heat of an oven, and then topping that crisp bread with any manner of toppings. Now, one of my favorites was topping it with hummus and chickpeas and vegetables, but absolutely one of the best was chicken fatta, which combines this crisped pita bread or flatbread with shredded chicken and rice and a tahini yogurt lemon sauce. It was really a wonderful. It's Frankly, it's a delicious hot mess. So is the rice just one choice? You could use chickpeas or other things, legumes? You know, the rule with fatta is that aside from the fact that you have to have the crisped flatbread, anything goes. I had eggplant fatta, I had chickpea fatta, I had hummus fatta, I had chicken fatta, anything goes. So a lot of people would just say mix and match what you like. So this is spices, crisp bread, cooked chicken, yogurt, tahini, little lemon juice. That's the basic approach? That's the basic approach. So you take your flatbread and like I say, you can either fry it until crisp or we found it just as easy and plenty of cooks in Jordan did as well. Just throw it into the oven until it's nice and crisp. You know, brush it with some olive oil, crack that up. And you take some seasonings and you poach chicken and then you tear apart your chicken. You can use that same water that you use to poach the chicken to cook your rice. And then you just start layering. You know, you layer your crisped pita bread, you layer your chicken, you layer your rice, and then you can throw on this amazing, what they call the holy trinity of Jordanian cooking, a mixture of yogurt, tahini, and lemon juice. You throw that on there. They almost always have some chopped nuts on top, especially almonds. Throw that on there. And what you get at the end, even though it just seems like, you know, (laughs) a multi-layer dip almost, it's really a wonderful combination of flavors and textures, and it's so delicious and satisfying. And the pomegranate molasses on top, right? Yeah, exactly. That's the one thing about you could end every recipe with. And then pomegranate molasses on top because it's sweet and sour. Exactly. And it adds a nice punch to all those other flavors. So chicken fata, this is from Jordan. I also had it in Lebanon. It really is the all-purpose casserole of the Middle East. It's delicious. Jam, thank you. Thank you. You can get the recipe for chicken fata at MilkStreetRadio.com. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Dan Pashman tackles the tinfish trend after the break. This is Christopher Kimball. You may have heard that we just started running international culinary tours. And one trip I am particularly excited about is Istanbul, which is based in part on my recent visit. Along with our partners at Culinary Backstreets, we put together an itinerary that goes way beyond the Grand Bazaar. This May, we'll visit local neighborhood markets, take a sail up the Bosporus, and harvest vegetables from farms in the city's ancient moats. You'll sample Turkish cheeses, flatbreads, pistachios, pomegranate molasses, and olive oil. And since this is, in fact, a Milk Street trip, you'll use those ingredients in hands-on cooking classes with local families and chefs. There are just three spots left on our May trip, so visit 177milkstreet.com tours. That's 177milkstreet.com slash tours to claim your spot. Plus, listeners to our radio show save 5% with code Istanbul. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. A few weeks ago, Kenji Lopez-Alt and I debated our favorite way to cook and peel eggs. Now, I argued that you needed a humongous ice bath to get perfectly peeled eggs, And Kenji said, well, no, it's really the way you cook them, not the ice bath. 
So we wanted to hear from you which side of the debate you fall on or the methods you think are even better than ours. And here's what you shared. Hi, it's Tim calling from Dover, Mass. I'm definitely on Chris's side when it comes to making the eggs. I followed it precisely this weekend, and it came out perfectly. Great egg salad. Hi, this is Rebecca Holden, and my tip is to use an Instapot. I find that the steam helps separate the shell from the egg, and the yolk is cooked absolutely perfectly. Steam has a lot of energy that that can really scale with the number of eggs that you might be cooking. This is Tina calling you from Germany. The method I use is um, somewhere between Chris's and Kenji's because I don't put the eggs into ice cold water. I partially agree with Chris's method in that plunging it in ice water is extremely important. But uh, I disagree with Chris and Kenji's method both that they're missing a critically important step before placing the eggs in the boiling water you should pierce the blunt end of the egg with a sharp needle. Hi, this is Lauren. I don't have ice at my house, so I just put a metal bowl of water in the freezer and then I drop the eggs in there for a few minutes. And since I've been doing that, they have peeled perfectly every time. There was some question of why a small vat with ice water wouldn't be as good as a large vat. If you have a small vat, you're going to have the area surrounding the hot eggs warming up and staying warm for a while until convection transfers the heat and cools things down. I find putting a touch of baking soda in the boiling water can uh, really make for a perfect appeal. I bake the egg around the side of the pan to break up the shell all the way around and then it's always really, really easy easy to peel it. Hello, this is Ragnar Hartman. I worked my way through college in a restaurant in Eugene, Oregon. And every day we would cook up at least five or six dozen hard-boiled eggs. Uh, we just boiled them with salted water and then ran cold water over them for about 10 minutes. Rarely had a problem. Thank you to everyone who called, emailed, and to the one listener who sent us a letter. As promised, I went back into the kitchen at Milk Street to try Kenji's method. And so let's get Kenji on the line and tell him what we found. Hello. Hey, Kenji. Uh, it's Kimball here in Boston. Oh, hey, Chris. How's it going? Yeah, I'm calling back uh, because we took your advice and we tested more ways to cook eggs to make them easy peel. Oh, yeah. yeah. The long and short of it was this. Either steaming or boiling water seem to work well. Okay. Uh, we still actually prefer boiling a little bit, but if you get the eggs shocked with hot water or mm -hmm. hot steam, that, that's obviously important. You're right, starting at cold water, which is what you and I used to do a long time ago, does mm -hmm. not work. That was the worst method. Right. But I, I'm going to hold my ground here on, on the shocking with ice water. You, you don't need a lot of – a huge bowl, mm -hmm. which need a lot of ice in proportion to the water and the number of eggs. Mm -hmm. And uh, it does seem to make a difference that if you get it really cold, it helps. It helps. Uh, I mean, just letting them sit at room temperature, that does not work very well. I guess running under cold water would be pretty good. But we pretty much agree. Uh, the only thing we really disagree about is 
the benefit of the, the cold shock at the end. Right, right, right. So yeah, I think we both agree that the most important thing is starting them hot, whether it's steaming or boiling, starting them hot as opposed to starting them in cold water um, is what really right. makes the most difference. As far as the shocking them afterwards go, you know, I personally didn't um, notice much of a difference in the testing that I've done there. Um, but I do wonder if maybe part of the difference uh, in the way we tested is rather than the rate at which the egg is cooling, I wonder if the final temperature is what's important. So mm. eggs that you go into ice water um, will get down to that, you know, that real fridge ice cold temperature faster than an egg just placed like in the refrigerator, for example. And the, the cooler the egg, the firmer it's going to be, so it'll be easier to peel. I sort of have this silly notion that if you shock them in really cold ice water, that somehow the egg sort of retracts and shrinks from the inner part of the shell. But right. that may be something that actually should be tested and not right. just be theoretical, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, and you also have to keep practicality in mind, right? Like right. I'm not going to fill my bathtub with ice cubes when I make a single boiled egg. Come on. I thought you were a scientist, <laughs> you know? I mean, I don't know. No, you, you can use a fairly small ball, but you got to use a lot of ice and, and you only right. have a few eggs. It's, it's fine. Kenji, uh, will agree to agree this time and I look okay. forward to the time we can agree to disagree which is even more fun. I'm sure that will come, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Now it's time to hear from our friend, Dan Pashman. Hey, Dan, how are you? Well, Chris, I'm a little peeved today. Oh, dear. I must say. You know, I watch food trends, just like you do, and, and I am annoyed to see this new trend. Everyone's talking about tinned fish. Oh boy, here we go. Yeah, I, I've noticed the same thing in the last year and a half. Yeah. They're talking about it like it's something new. Yeah, well, I think, didn't Napoleon have someone invent tinned food? Um, right, right, and when, I, I was going to say when we were growing up, but I don't think those two things happened concurrently, no offense. <laughs> they called it yeah. something else, we called it canned fish. Yeah, good point. Right? There was nothing wrong with it. It was delicious, and now some marketing geniuses have decided to call it tinned fish. Because it sounds fancier. Well, I, I will defend it only in that the quality that you can get now of some of this tinned fish is actually quite good, uh, we, which is different than when I grew up. The, the range and quality of the, of the stuff now is actually quite good. I, I hear you. It, it pains me to admit it, but I do agree with that. Um, the fish inside these tins is generally higher quality than the sort of cheap supermarket stuff. And I, I like that there's a wider variety. Of course, there's always been canned salmon, but there's a wider range of higher quality. These tinned salmon, I've seen cod liver, of course, lots of sardines. Um, then again, if you've been seeking out high quality Italian and Spanish tuna in olive oil in the glass jars, which has been around for a while, like none of this is new. So I'm just I'm annoyed that they're trying to pretend that it's new. That being said, I agree with you that I'm glad it exists because I think that it's very practical. It's like a great thing to have in your pantry for when you want something that's delicious and healthy and quick. Well, it also is an anti-trend. I remember back in the 70s when I was first doing a lot of cooking. And, and don't say 1870s, Dan. That's that's, that's, that's an old joke. <laughs> um, you know, everything had to be made from scratch. I was making my own baguettes and eclair. You know, everything was done from scratch. The idea that you'd buy something in the store was just indefensible. But it turns out that even the French will go to the patisserie to buy the tart. Or they, they don't make their bread. They don't make their desserts most of the time. So the thing I do like is now we can mix and match stuff you buy in a store 
with stuff you make at home. And it's not, you know, oh, I bought that in a store and it's, you're no longer considered a serious cook. So I, I do like the, uh, dare I say it, the informality of, <laughs> of being able to shop for part of your dinner, which, you know, that's okay. What's your go-to with a nice canned, tinned fish? Like, you know, it, it's lunchtime. You're taking a quick break from work. You come into the kitchen. You want to whip up something. You grab the can. What are you doing with it? I don't eat tin fish. Wait. <laughs> I just made a big case for it. But the, 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 the one thing I do a lot, though, to be fair, I do like a couple anchovies dissolved into oil when you're cooking onions or sofrito. It doesn't add any fishiness. just adds depth of flavor. So I, I do love that. I I, th- I think a little bit of smaller fish like anchovies is part of a foundation to a stew, for example, or soup. I, I think that's great. So I, I, I'm all in favor of that. All right, let's go back. Why don't you eat tinned or canned, as I call it, fish? How much do you charge an hour for your psychoanalysis? Before, <laughs> oh, boy. Be, we before really, I answer this? We've really hit on something. It's okay, Chris. This is a safe space for you. I, I know why. I'll tell you. Let what. it all out. Here's, here's why. In 1969, I drove from London to Nairobi. And for most of that time, I ate nothing but canned foods, lots of tinned fish. And we're not talking about gourmet fish here. So dinty more beefs too, (laughs) and canned salmon. So I I think after three months of living off of canned foods, that may have had an effect on my, uh, the rest of my tinned fish experience. So you, you overdid it in 1969. And you haven't recovered. Yeah, I, I, I got to restart. I got to take a fresh Yeah, look. I mean, that's it's yeah. been a while, Chris. Yeah, it's been. You know, look, something <laughs> similar happened to me with tequila in high school, and I got back on the horse eventually. Well, yeah. The tequila horse is easier to mount than tin fish horse. <laughs> well, I mean, but but to be serious, I, I do think a lot of these companies, there's even restaurants now that specialize in tin fish. It's okay. I mean, the, the quality's good. And it's a way of getting things you probably couldn't get otherwise. So I don't know. I, I, I guess I am for it. All right. And I want you to try some so that you can say that even more definitively, Chris. Anchovies and tuna just it doesn't get me into the tin fish club. I'll send you some cod liver. <laughs> Dan Pashman, thank you. All right. Thanks, Chris. That was Dan Pashman, host of the Sporkful podcast. That's it for today. You can find all of our episodes on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. You can learn more about us here at Milk Street at 177milkstreet.com. There you can become a member and get full access to every recipe, access to all of our live stream cooking classes, free standard shipping from the Milk Street store, and more. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week with more food stories and kitchen questions. And thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimmel's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Co-founder, Melissa Baldino. Executive producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Senior editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Sarah Clapp. Associate producer, Caroline Davis, with production help from Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chewbop Crew. Additional music by George Brendel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. 